Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to SEAC Stories. This podcast is brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. SEAC is a university-wide multidisciplinary initiative that facilitates collaborations and builds on the expertise of our researchers to address the region's challenges. This podcast tells the stories of our members, exploring and sharing their research in and across the region. Welcome to the SEAC Stories podcast. I'm Natalie Pearson. Today, we're thinking about identity, performance, and the nation in the context of ethnic Chinese in Southeast Asia, a truly fascinating topic and one I can't wait to hear more about. I'm joined by Dr. Josh Stenberg, a senior lecturer in Chinese studies in the School of Languages and Cultures here at the University of Sydney. Josh is a scholar of Sino-Southeast Asian performance and literature, and his work examines the intersection of ethnic and political identity through the cultural performance of minority ethnic communities. He's the author of Minority Stages, Sino-Indonesian Performance and Public Display, published in 2019 by University of Hawaii Press. Josh, welcome to CX Stories, and thank you for joining us. Thanks, Natalie. I'm pleased to be here. Now, Josh, we had you lined up for the podcast to talk about your work on Sino-Southeast Asian performance and literature, but along the way, you've actually managed to collect a decra for yourself. Congratulations. Thank you. So uh, for those listening in who are not aware of what DECRAs are, they are highly competitive research grants funded by the Australian government through the Australian Research Council, and they stand for Discovery Early Career Researcher Award. <laughs> You've been awarded this DECRA funding to look at the reception of China's state-funded cultural diplomacy initiatives among overseas Chinese communities in multicultural societies. Can you talk us through your project? Sure. This is a project that I've been working on for a couple of years, so to speak. That is to say, it emerges from uh, various other projects that have kind of come together. So for a long time, I've been really interested in the cultural products of ethnic Chinese in Sumatra, in Java, in Borneo. And as I was working through these particular products, be they puppet theater or, you know, musicals or literature or community performance, that sort of thing. Um, And as I was working through them, it became evident to me that it was a bit restrictive to consider them only in these national silos, you know, like, oh, this is the Sino-Indonesian phenomenon. And here is the, you know, phenomenon for the Chinese in Malaysia. And here's what's going on in Manila. Um, And especially because that kind of research tends to draw you back into history as well. It becomes very difficult to get a read on what's going on now without having a solid understanding of what was going on in the Indonesian case in the Suharto years. The more I went back through history and looked at the archives and talked to older people or considered uh, what the colonial newspapers had to say. Uh, You know, the more I was looking at that, the more it took me also to this realization that what we're talking about is networks of performance, networks of cultural expression that are talking to one another, that are watching one another. If we go really far back in history, it's literally sort of a network, a maritime network, a kind of you might maritime commodity, you might even say, that comes from places like Fujian and Guangdong into all of maritime and the coastal parts of mainland Southeast Asia. And 
now, both because of the soft culture push of the People's Republic of China government the, under Xi Jinping, including Belt and Road Initiatives, but also lots of other related cultural diplomacy initiatives, as well as things that have happened in the technological space. The fact that people can just look on the internet, can send one another through WeChat or through Line or through WhatsApp, these various platforms that people might use, which are also sort of divided country by country. They can see what's going on in a Taiwanese theater that's related to their own theater in Sumatra, or they can see what's going on with the puppet theaters of Singapore um, when they are themselves in East Java. Um, so this is a, a project where specifically um, it's framed as considering how these cultural products might be changing, might help us understand how Sino-Southeast Asians, ethnic Chinese in Southeast Asia, consider their ethnic identity in light of the very prominent and very uh, wide-ranging soft power initiatives of the People's Republic of China. Okay, so you've mentioned Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, and Singapore. Are these the four countries that you're looking at as part of your DECRA, or are you taking a more Southeast Asia approach? Yeah, I mean, I figure for, for SEAC, there's no reason not to mention how these networks really do operate throughout the totality of Southeast Asia. But the actual DECRA project is concentrated on four sites in two countries and the particular cultural products that are active there. So uh, I'm looking at Medan and Environments and Padang and environments where there's a notable ethnic Chinese orchestral and theatrical traditions. Um, and in Myanmar, um, I'm looking at Yangon and Mandalay, which also have different two separate performative traditions. But it's very clear that I have to work towards placing that in the context of these very wide-ranging networks. And you said that these troops or orchestral groups or theatre groups watch each other. How do they do that? Um... That's sort of uh, one thing that's very interesting in how things might be changing. So in the Suharto years, where there was so much restriction on what could be done in the Chinese cultural space, even in times like that, you find that there are people who are sending manuscripts to be published in Singapore or in Hong Kong. So it's not like it ever really shuts. And you talk to Chinese Indonesians who, who went through that period. And of course, the karaoke, you know, Mandarin karaoke continued to exist. There were also, you know, in the later Suharto years, there was there were Chinese television shows that people were familiar with either through video or through other means through, you know, and there's um, Taiwanese pop stars who, who were popular in Indonesia during the Suharto years, singing sometimes in Chinese and sometimes in Indonesian. In the Indonesian case, particularly, one often thinks, okay, well, everything must have stopped during those times. And I don't want to diminish the violence or harm that was done to Chinese culture and Chinese community institutions in those times in any way. But it, in fact, borders are porous. Songs travel, songs get translated, things that are actually Chinese might get re-coded as being Javanese and vice versa. You get all sorts of stuff going on like that. But now it doesn't have to be so uh, individual, like it's not depending on people sending a manuscript here or there, like people on their phones or people on their computers can see all kinds of performance, can read all manner of things. So whereas it was previously very likely that if you were in Medan, you were getting your Chinese sources from places like Penang and from Singapore, um, nowadays, if you're interested in Chineseness with a big C, well, nowadays you can easily access all sorts of things that are produced, also not in the ancestral areas where Sino-Indonesians mostly come from, but from 
Beijing or from Shanghai or, you know, all sorts of phenomena that you might sort of associate with a global Chinese identity and also lots of products that are affirmed or countersigned by the Chinese state. And so the sites that you're looking at, say Medan, for example, and whether it's an orchestra or a theatre that you're looking at there, are they being funded directly by China or are they ground up initiatives that you're looking at that are responding to what's coming out of China? This is part of the reason that Southeast Asia is really interesting because it's not a question of ground up initiatives so much as a long-standing tradition. You can talk about Medan as being a an important site on the Chinese opera circuit since the late 19th century. And of course, the turbulent 20th century uh, interrupts these circuits. But at the end of the Sarda period, we once again see troops being invited to perform Chinese opera in, in Medan, both from other parts of Southeast Asia um, and from China. And the question is not so much, are, they, are there sort of ground up initiatives, but are these existing practices going to be overlaid or uh, supplanted or altered by interaction with greater exposure to an official Chinese culture that the Chinese state might particularly want to send abroad as representations of, of China, which is then, again, often the, the Chinese state is to a substantial extent interested in or promotes a culture that might conceivably be considered as Northern Chinese. There are elements of Beijing centrism um, or Mandarin centrism in the Chinese cultural products that are then selected to be a part of cultural diplomacy. And that is then also part of a history where Sino-Southeast Asians uh, might consider or reconsider um, their identity in view of a a new narrative or a different account of official Chinese culture. For instance, the learning of Mandarin as opposed to Hokkien, Hakka, Cantonese, which are the traditional languages of Sino-Southeast Asians, ultimately is a, a result of the importance of the official language of the Chinese state rather than the association with the parts of China that ultimately their ancestors are from. Yeah. So when we're talking about China, there are multiple ethnic identities within China. And it comes back to that point you made earlier about Chinese essentialism, right? And who these performers are performing to, and the audiences that they're performing to. And you said that ethnic Chinese in Southeast Asia are always in the position of performing ethnicity to the majority and the state. Can you expand on that? Yeah. So, I mean, that's perhaps more the focus of, of my my dissertation and then and then my book. And I think um, this is often the case with minorities. I think we can also consider the question of, you know, when the Chinese community in Sydney um, or in Vancouver um, or anywhere, when they put on a Chinese cultural performance, there are multiple audiences. Um, one of those audiences are the younger people of that same community say, okay, well, this is an important practice to which you ought to have access and perhaps to which you will feel a sense of belonging. Um, and another one tends to be, you know, towards the majority population, often in the context, for instance, in Sydney or Vancouver, often the context of maybe official multiculturalism and then the state. I think minorities are often in this position, not only ethnic minorities. I think the Mardi Gras parade is also a statement of identity and a contested one at that. Um, you know, the question of Chineseness isn't front and center um, when you're in China 
and the presumed audience is overwhelmingly ethnic Chinese and everybody speaks Chinese. And there's, you know, there's a lot of other things come into immediate view, but the question is not usually, you know, what does it mean to be this ethnic identity? And the moment you're in a foreign or in a minority situation, the moment it's a Chinese troop being sent by the often, you know, say, let's say by the embassy or hosted by a cultural center or whatever, then there's this imposition or in any event, inevitable association with being themselves some kind of embassy, some kind of ambassador for a culture, for a minority, for a nation. So these performances have historic traditions. We talked about performance traditions in Medan going back to the 19th century, for example. Are they also responsive to the contemporary context? Yeah, I mean, uh, so this is a different challenge, I think, in considering maybe traditional arts all over the place, but I think particularly with traditional Asian arts, in the sense that I believe that a lot of people have internalized a dichotomy by which the West is the site of dynamism and modernity and newness and innovation. And Asia is left with exotic traditions. And I think it's a very damaging for traditional arts. Um, you know, I think this view is sort of held institutionally in a number of Asian states as well, so that you have, for instance, spoken theater, I think in all of Asia, resulting from contact with the West, having a sometimes a monopoly on what is considered innovative and political and important for contemporary culture in state X, um, whereas then the traditional genres are rendered as museum arts are considered to be frozen. And in fact, I mean, you know, I'm obviously exaggerating the extent to which this might apply. And once you talk to practitioners, of course, nobody can come away with that impression because practitioners of traditional arts are always impressively innovative. And it is that innovation which usually sustains that tradition. A lot of the traditions could be phrased in terms of repeated innovation. But I think it's a concern um, when we when we consider traditional arts that we don't fall into the sense that if it's altering or if it's undergoing change or if the people are making, you know, specific commentary on local contemporary conditions that it's then somehow that it stops being in the traditional category. Um, so one of the uh, things that I'm interested in looking at how these cultural responses might be evolving is is to consider how in in the light both of geopolitical change and technical change um, these traditions might be reinterpreted might be might be cross-pollinating might be altering and really to talk and listen to audiences patrons and above all the practitioners of these arts to see how they formulate how they conceptualize um, their practice. So you've talked about spoken theatre as being one of the places where innovation and response to contemporary context is sort of allowed. Can you give us an example of a traditional genre that is also innovating and responding to contemporary concerns that we might not be so aware of? Yeah, um, so perhaps I'll take the Wayang Potehi <laughs> example. So, so Potehi, known in Mandarin as Budaishi, are a Hokkien derived glove puppet form. Um, 
perhaps not of enormous antiquity. We don't actually have um, sources indicating that it's much older than, say, the 18th century. Um, but it may be. I mean, puppet theaters often fly under the radar and don't get documented a great deal. But what we do know for certain is that in the 19th century, they travel from Fujian with migrants. And you have to imagine, I think, not only Chinese migrants, but certainly Chinese migrants as always bringing their theater with them, always bringing their music with them. And that comes back to the point you made earlier about these traditions traveling by boat because they are easily portable. If you have a small musical instrument or a few small puppets, they're quite easy to transport. Yeah, and it may be that the um, prominence of this particular puppet theater and its resilience has something to do with the low overhead um, and the portability of both the puppet stage um, and the, the puppets themselves. There are some puppet stages in Java, which still are the ones that came from China. So we, we know that they go at this period to Taiwan, they go to the Philippines, they go to Java, they go to Sumatra. In the mid-20th century, they were still on Borneo. Um, they are still performing in Penang and in Singapore, and the traditions in Myanmar and in Manila um, have since disappeared. Um, and I think what's really interesting is that if you, if you consider the way people talk and probably also the position within the state um, of all of these genres, um, it will often be framed in terms of tradition, in terms of this is, you know, this is the one that has retained the original tradition. And yet the practices that we can observe in Taiwan, in Fujian, in Java, in Singapore, and Penang, the five active practices, not counting the differences between troops in all of these, um, they are all strikingly different. And it isn't that long ago. Most of this migration is probably late 19th century, early 20th century, that these particular lineages um, arrive in different places. And um, the Indonesian one, the Javanese one, is very traditional, so to speak, in terms of the stage. Uh, you go up to the backstage over up a little ladder, um, and the stages are often in temples, and they're facing the divinities for whom the puppet theater is being performed. But for Chinese observers, it's very peculiar um, because it's in Indonesian, whereas the ones in Penang and in Singapore remain in Hokkien. And then if you look at the one in Penang, which is in Hokkien, the music that they use is completely altered, and the plots that they do are completely altered. The Indonesian retains the plots, but the plots are performed by, by puppet masters um, who are not ethnic Chinese. So the context is extremely Chinese. The material side of it is very Chinese. Um, and then the linguistic and the, in some way, the ethnic side of it um, is radically different. So different that for people observing from from China, which does have more of an essentialist, I think, discourse about what it means to be Chinese. It can sort of fall outside the category of Chinese puppetry the moment it's performed not by Chinese people um, or not in Chinese. Or it, it reads as an aberration or another exotic phenomenon. And then very recently, these traditions have come into contact with one another again. And then sometimes, because people are very open to different influences because it is in no ways a restrictive tradition, then the renewed contact with, uh, with the PRC, um, with uh, Taiwan, can produce evolutions, you might say. That answer really expresses the dynamism of these genres that you're looking at 
And one of the things that you bring, well, two of the things that you bring to your research, first of all, you've got this amazing language capability, but one of the other amazing things that you bring to your research is the really deep networks with these troops. How has that level of access informed your research? Well, it, I mean, it'd just be impossible to do any of this research without the enormous goodwill and hospitality of these troops. And that's true in Southeast Asia, as it has been for me in various parts of China and in and in very all sorts of diasporic communities that I've worked in. Um, and and generally speaking, you know, if you've decided to become an actor, then you would like it for people to write about you, to interview you. That goes on. I should say also that, you know, I left the university between every one of my degrees and worked in theaters. Um, and so those networks have also carried over and allowed me to sort of snowball you know to go to go from one and because the networks are transnational um that often means that i've got you know the reason that i can talk to nanyan people in manila if i show up in manila is because they've been alerted by their friends in fujian or in taiwan that i'm okay to talk to um so i i yeah uh, and i also have to say um it, it maybe it has something to do with linguistics in the sense that if you if you speak reasonably good Chinese, then Chinese communities are incredibly welcoming. I have almost without exception been greeted with great enthusiasm by local communities, and that has nothing to do with me, but it does have something to do with the fact that uh, Chinese communities really value their cultural productions and that it strikes them as meaningful and important that somebody come learn about their puppet theater or their orchestral tradition, which are aspects of culture that don't always meet with the same respect in other places. Josh, you contend that Chinese cultural identity in Southeast Asia is negotiated, contingent, fluid, and performed. How is this the case? Well, I mean, I think that's the case with ethnic identity generally. I mean, my baseline for understanding ethnic identity is um, dialogic. It's very much about what you believe about yourself and what other people tell you about yourself and if the socio-political context in which that identity is emerging alters um, then necessarily your your sense of ethnicity also will alter ethnicity is something that people not only in the chinese world but generally often have a really hard essentialist biological view of you know my ancestors i'm told were x therefore i am x Often, that's the general understanding, right? And it isn't necessarily examined. And it could be very politically very useful to give people a certain um, fixed uh, sense of identity that shouldn't be challenged or that, if challenged, will provoke a uh, response. What that means in terms of the history and the identity of ethnic Chinese in Southeast Asia um, is that it would be extremely difficult to identify any constant um, across the populations and across the history of these populations. I don't, in fact, think there is one. It is much more a question of, with this particular background, with this community, um, in this society, what becomes appropriate, what becomes beneficial, what is permissible, and what is what one ought to be silent about, um, given the particular situation. So in, in the case of Myanmar, in the case of Indonesia, in the case of Vietnam, um, there have all been moments where there where it was um, necessary to 
uh, reduce aspects of or to hide aspects of uh, Chinese ethnicity because of the um, attitude of the state or and or of the general population. Um, and there have been other periods where it can be um, celebrated as as an identity that comes from afar. Um, and there are other moments where it is really necessary to celebrate it as an identity that is local, that it isn't diaspora, that it is not a question of being, you know, ultimately from somewhere else, but that um, we have always been here, at least, you know, or that 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 this community has has a claim to a long-standing um, history in the place. And again, you could look at any state, I think, in the world and and discover. Um, parallels, but the extremely tumultuous nature of ethnic Chinese history in Southeast Asia in the in the last couple of centuries <laughs> um, really really makes it clear how dependent such identities and such expressions of identity are on the historical moment and the socio political environment. Josh, thank you for joining us. Your Deco project sounds really exciting. It sounds like you've got so much to go on with, and um, we're really looking forward to seeing the outcomes as it progresses. Congratulations once again. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.